This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Western Wall. Today we're discussing integration. Integration is to make sure you're not a talking head, to make sure you're not just ideas floating around, but how to actually integrate those ideas. So if you look at the word integrity, Integrity is the actual character trait of someone who integrates. Integrity. Let's define it with the word integrity. In, in, integrity means integrating what you know with who you are. Integrity. Integrating what you know with who you are. See, a lot of us have kind of a nebulous definition of integrity because we, we um, you know, we just think of it as like, integrity is like part of being good. You know, it's like, it's not a real clear definition. But when integrity is, is that you've, ha- you, you've taken all your ideas and now, the, now you live them. You're, you're fully integrated in, inside of those ideas. So like an example would be, let's say you teach a shoplifter not to steal anymore until she can explain to you exactly why shoplifting is, for, is wrong. Like till she really gets it. And then, uh, and so now you're watching the cameras in a shop to see what happens when she shoplifts. <laughs> Again, at which point, what does she lack? What does that woman lack? Integrity. She lacks integrity. Because she knows it's wrong to steal. But she has not integrated. You mind sitting in line with them, like maybe down the middle or something? So, so what she lacks is integrity. And, and what does that mean she lacks integrity? She did not integrate it. She knows it's wrong to steal, but she hasn't integrated it. Smokers. Smokers have not integrated the, um, you know, that it's forbidden to smoke. And sadly, many of them are wearing yarmulkes. <laughs> Which is like, how do you smoke wearing a yarmulke? Like, that, that's just a total lack of integrity. You know, because if you recognize that the, you know, I understand if you're a nihilist, atheist, materialist, thinking the whole world is meaningless, and you want to smoke cigarettes, so go ahead, you know, like, your, your organism's anyway going to be wiped out at the end, so why not do it earlier? But the second someone realizes that they are created in God's image, and that their body is nothing but a temple for their soul, so then you can't harm your body. You know, if I can't figure out exactly what food to eat, I just don't eat. <laughs> Today was one of those days. I mean, it's also Sunday. Sunday, our family cleanses from Shabbos. But, but still, I mean, eventually I was like, I better eat something. Nothing came to mind. And so, and, so I'm not even, even going to eat out of, you know, just pure survival. Because if nothing comes to mind as what would be the right medicine for the body for this day, so I'll just go without and let the body work itself out. You know, I'll eat a little later. And uh, I actually grabbed one of my wife's gluten-free oat muffins. Yeah, which I normally just reserve for her because I don't want to take any. You never want to touch a gluten-free person's stuff, you know. So, But anyway, I was leaving the house on my way here, and I said, I think that I'd better put something in there. So I figured there can't be anything more benign than a gluten-free muffin, you know. Of oat muffin, so that's what I did. Anyway, the it was interesting that we're discussing food at all because the food does integrate. Hopefully, if you eat the right foods, it integrates, becomes you. 
So what about ideas? Can ideas become you? And, you know, it's very interesting when you bring up Judaism on this subject because most of Judaism's daily living, daily living is, is your body moving in, in action, you know. There are plenty of things that are going on purely intellectually, but a lot of our Jewish life is spent doing. So there are these actions going on. So, for example, uh, for men, men and women, but for men specifically, uh, we wear tefillin. So what's tefillin all about? Tefillin's all about the recognition that there's a God. Okay, so for women, recognizing there's a God is maybe more easily integrated. For men, it's not so easily integrated. And so what do we do? We tie one box with the oneness of God written inside of it on the arm, representing our strength and our, you know, our our, uh, our uh, um, ego and being able to being able to uh, you, know, you know the ego and the other is on our heads which we have to put it above the hairline over the pineal not pineal the fontanelle which is the little space between all your your three lobes of the skull because that's the aperture through which the cerebral cortex gets reached by the tefillin, which is, again, the oneness of God. So we need to like impress that upon us, but we do it with this action. And what are we using? We're using leather straps. So we're strapping ourselves down with leather, you know, which is, which is ta- taking this, this otherwise wild donkey of a, of a man and... and getting him under control. But all of this is, is about taking ideas and moving them into the body through actions. Now, by the way, the same thing occurs when you kiss a mezuzah. When you walk through a door that has the, the, you know, the doorpost sign on it, the mezuzah, with the, it has the same parsha with Shema in it. So women can pull this off too. And why is it on your door? It's on your door because your home can be a godly place, but who says out there on the streets is going to be so holy? So you fill up on your, fill up at your door, you and then head out to town and keep the oneness of God with you wherever you go. It's a very similar story as the tefillin. Now, uh, another thing that men do because men have a harder time integrating is, is we grow beards. Beards are very important part of the man's face and it's actually tubular hair the hair on the top of the head is flat and the beard here is tubular and the Kabbalists teach us that every follicle of a man's beard is is a, a pipe that pipes the thought to the emotion and then obviously to action because when you have strong desire desire towards something you're more likely to run for it which is why the word for desire in Hebrew is has the root has the root resh tzaddik. So resh tzaddik is one of these two-letter roots. There aren't too many two-letter roots in Hebrew compared to three-letter roots. But Reish Tzaddik is the root of, of desire, which is the word rotse. And what is it also the root of? Run, run that's right. Because you only run when you want something bad enough, you know. 
Like this, you know, you see young people, teenagers and young twenties. They're they're kind of like they've got that kibbutz walk, you know, back to the potato patch. You know, they're just they're not running. And and then you get people later in life even that have a hard time motivating, getting running, because. They never figured out what they want. And it's hard to figure out what you want when you got parents telling you what you should want, you got school systems telling you what you should want, and you got, you know, whatever. You got a lot of, there's a lot of voices in your head of what you should want. And who says that's what you want? You know? I mean, there's certain things that are generic that we all want. We all want to be close to God, even if you're an atheist, you're just living your whole life in disappointment. And we all want to be close to God. We all want to do the right things. We all want to find out what the right things are to do. And I mean, it's things that are generic that we all want. And, uh, and then there's, but then there's like, what do you want to do for a living? And how, how would you like to contribute in this world? And a lot of people don't know. Now, one of the reasons why they go so slowly, even when they've finally said, okay, I'm going to do this, and they still have... have uh, Raise your hand if you ever said finally that you are going to go do something and then you found yourself unmotivated. Anyone had that happen? Yeah, you know why? It's because, okay, I'm going to go do this. So you're like, you're going down that highway. Yeah, what's the problem with going down, or down that boulevard? What's the problem with going down that boulevard to get to, you know, let's say this corner here where you decided, okay, fine, I'll go for that. What, why is it that on that boulevard as you're moving towards your goal, why do you start going slower and slower? And it's almost like it's getting farther away as you get towards it. Meaning you're losing motivation. Why? Because if what you really want in life is here, if this is what you really wanted over here, then the further you go, the farther you're getting from it. <laughs> so you're, you're like unconsciously realizing that you're going away from it. You ever thought about that? Did you get that? No, in a second, I'm, I'm going for this because you know what? Eventually, I just got enough pressure that I got to choose something to go for. So I, I'm going for this. So I get myself enrolled in some training or a degree program or something to go for that. Or I'm tr- or I'm doing vocational training or I'm getting you know whatever to get that. And what happens? You start going slower and slower and slower and slower because how fast can you go in a direction if you know potentially you're going in the wrong direction? meaning you're going away from what you want. It'd be like schmoozing with a friend on a boulevard. And you've been carefully watching the signs. Let's say this before GPS. You've been carefully watching the signs, but, in, but you guys started getting heated in the discussion and you, started, you realized you missed a sign. Now you've been going, it's a 35 mile per hour boulevard. You've been going 50. It's 10 at night. You're going to a party and there's no, no cars on the road. So you're doing 50. But you realize one of the signs you didn't look at because you looked at your friend saying, what are you, an idiot? <laughs> and then you, but now you're driving and deep down you realize you didn't look at that sign. You still going 50? You're not going to go 50. You don't want to be going 50 miles per hour in the wrong direction. Now, by the way, you may still not turn around, but you're not going to go 50. You're going to be going like 30 for like the next 10 minutes until you finally say to your friend, you know what, I think we missed it. And then turn around and backtrack. Painful. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, fear of success is a, an interesting one. It's there are people who actually feel highly capable. They're hard to find, but you may be one of them. Um, that they know they're highly capable. It's just that they don't. They have they have fear of successfully being consistent once they achieve. And it's a double fear too, because it's not only failure to be consistent, but it's also rejection because everyone gets to know you as being someone who's good at that. And now you got to hold up what they feel about you, meaning that your your image in their eyes, and you've got your own dealing with the fact that you like. How can I keep doing this for 20 years? And so that's called fear of success. And it's a pretty uh, complicated issue, um, but easily beatable. Easily beatable. It's complicated in understanding it, but once you got it, you can, it's not hard to beat that. Yeah? I actually thought about that recently, what she was saying. Um, Rachel. Okay, that could also that could also hold us back. Is the is the self image shifting? Yeah. Could be scary for the ego. Yeah, a lot of self image shift. I was actually speaking to my daughter today, and asked her if it was strange for her to change last names. She said no. I think she kind of has been thinking for the last many years that her last name's not permanent. Like, meaning, I think all 19 years of her life, she's been thinking that way. So, it was no big deal. Okay, anyway, but let's get back to running and desire and, and uh, integration. So, so the, so the word in Hebrew, as usual, Hebrew just nails this stuff, is that you only run when you know what you want. You only run when you know what you want. And... And for that reason, all of us have to take this lesson seriously. And what is that lesson? We have to take the lesson seriously that, that it's better to figure out what you want than to go kind of try random stuff. I mean, there is a time to try random stuff, but better to figure it out. And, uh, and it's funny, our institutions that we have here in Israel, we call them yeshivas, which is interesting because the word sit, which is total opposite of run. The total opposite of run, but, but it's better to sit and figure it out than run around. I mean, you can think about it in, as being lost in the wilderness. You know, if you're lost in the wilderness, and at one point you may want to try running in different directions and see how far you can go, but who knows how deep this place is. And, and uh, maybe people are looking for you and you're running exactly away from where they suspected you to be based on when you had left and, you know, all those coordinates. It's like, often it's better to stay put. You know, given the size, obviously. If it's not that big a forest, so then you're good. Start moving. But if it's really big, you know, days big, might be better off just building a little hut and a tent and, uh, you know, just staying there for a while until you got your gather your wits about you and figure out what it is you're going to do, you know, rather than just start running around and losing your energy and then not having a fire when the dark hits and, not having anything to eat because you didn't have any time to gather anything, and, and now it's dark. 
So it might be better just to stay where you are. Anyway, yeshiva is a great time to, to figure it out, figuring out what you want. And I can tell you, years ago, all those guys that sat with me years ago really figured out what they wanted. Some had to sit longer than others. Like, but once they figured out what they wanted, they just flew in. They just hit the ground running, you know, having the time to work it out. You know? and it's amazing how the Jewish world will tolerate a person in yeshiva. You know? like like how old are you, Bensi? 21. Ah, see you're tolerated all over the world. But if you were 31, now they tolerate 21-year-olds who don't know what the hell they're doing. But a 31-year-old, there's zero tolerance for that. Like, and nobody got time for that. What? I find that my age, unfortunately, I think the over-tolerance holds you back. Yeah, it messes you guys up. You have no pressure. Exactly. No, no, no pressure to, to be anywhere, do anything. You have ultimate tolerance from society. And it's... And yeah, it's a, it's a whole racket being run. And it, it, the weirdest part about it is these are important trajectorial, trajectory years. You know, like, I'm sure if, I mean, I, I haven't checked this out, but I'm sure if we found the most highly successful people throughout all the ages of history, meaning all the centuries, that I, pro- I promise you, I mean, I don't know, I didn't check it out, but I can almost promise you that between 18 and 22, they were busy. <laughs> <laughs> like those were important years. Those weren't years just drunk and stoned at college parties. You know, Th- those were really important years. And and society was not tolerant of anyone over fourteen until the last until the industrial revolution. You know, even after that, until I don't know how long are education systems. Anyone know how long the education the Jewish education system is two hundred years old, um, meaning post thirteen. When did the rest of your world start junior high and high school? I think it was this century. I think it was the 1900s that, the, that Western civilization started with schools. I think it was that. Holding camps. Holding camps. Well, training camps for the industrial complex. Yeah. yeah. So these are kind of new things. And certainly there was... I don't think there was any tolerance for a 14-year-old. You know, they not busy working. Yeah. Just as you were saying this, I think I realized something. Yeah. That it seems like the narrative of the Western world, or I don't know the rest of the world, but I just know where I grew up, is it seems like starts from run towards desire. So when you're like 30, suddenly you have to know what you desire. <laughs> start off running, doing, trying everything. Right. So yeah, we're definitely into desire, and then, and then achieve that desire, and uh, and it shows up so much. We have more words for desire than Eskimos have for snow. You understand? There's like a lot of words for desire, lots and lots and lots of them. And each one has a different nuance to it, yeah, because that's where it's all at. I mean, I mean, <laughs> what did God create the world out of? His desire to make a world. So, like, you know, before there's even anything, there's only desire, right? The whole world's made of his desire. What's the Brooklyn Bridge made out of? Desire of people in Brooklyn to get to Manhattan quicker. You know, what are cars made out of? Desire of human beings to get places quicker. And airplanes are made of the same stuff. Your clothing's made of the desire of designers to, to like, make an earning with their, uh, make a living with their creativity. And the desires of seamsters and seamstresses to 
feed their families and run sewing machines and everything's made. Your skin's made of the desire of your parents for one another. Everything's made of desire. There ain't nothing but desire. This building's the desire of uh, Rabbi Noah Weinberg to have a center across from the Western Wall. Like, and the desire of the donors to feel good about themselves that they, you know, actually made a dent in assimilation, you know. Everything. You can never look at anything that doesn't have desire in it. Enlightenment. What about enlightenment? Uh, you've gone beyond us. We don't know what you're talking about. Or maybe just I don't. If you want to reach a place of no desire. Oh, enlightenment. Yeah. Like Buddhist enlightenment. Yeah. To reach a place of no desire. But you have the desire to reach that place. So. Okay, but once you're there, you have no desire. Except for maybe to finish better off with Jada Plot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the the... The Jewish definition of desire shares the Buddhist definition only as far as selflessness, but not as far as desire. Not as far as desire. Oh yeah, when you get to that spot, your flame for for God, you know, flames burn upward. Your flame for God's just like, you know. Because think about it, you're selfless now. All you want is reattached, you know. Like if you died saying Shema, that'd be perfect. <laughs> you know, but you didn't die. So then you're just desire for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Like, how can I serve God with all of my desire? You know, you know, because I don't have that much desire for Maserati. You know, and I'm not that desirous of a steak sandwich. You know, I'm, I'm enlightened now, meaning I'm I'm without self. So like now, my desire is just totally focused, as opposed to maybe a a, a side point. You know, my desire for God no longer a side point, but that's all I've got left. Yeah. By the way, one of the places that lends itself to is is um, helping humanity. Why? What is God's main job? God's main job is to bestow. Is to you know, it's an unfolding of giving from infinite to finite. That's the flow. So like a guy who's gone totally selfless and desires only to connect to God in, in, is in, in uh, India. Yeah, so he's just going to meditate full time. Fasting, speech fast, like just be in the desire for the Almighty, for the One. But in Judaism, yeah, you'll do your meditations for sure. You'll be involved in all that. But you will, you will probably run a soup kitchen. And people just won't be able to figure out how you keep going with that volume of work. And you don't seem to ever get tired. And they don't realize that you're not even doing anything but playing God right now. You're just in full emulation, just making sure everyone's eating. Did you get a soup? Oh, good. You want another? You know, vroom, 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 you know. And, and it's like, I know people like this. They're pretty interesting people. But they're just, there. that's where they're at now. They just do nothing but, they're just clearing houses for giving because that's what God does and they just want to emulate that. And there's nothing left of them. They've, they've burned out every last sense of ego. And so now they serve the public tirelessly. 
and they and they look really gruff and kind of not spiritual because they're just like hauling pots and, and like now they have a staff of people hauling pots and now they're on the phones trying to fundraise to get the next you know thousand people fed this week you know and it's funny when you're talking to them because you can't say no it's the weirdest thing you can't say no to these guys because they're there already so they're radiating that you're going to help them continue this crusade of theirs to feed people and then you're thinking like i mean it's a cute contribution but like not the most spiritual guy i ever met meanwhile you have no idea that he's already way up the ladder way up jacob's ladder and has dedicated his life to just make sure people have soup. You know, it's weird. And these guys, I always try to avoid them too because it's like, how many causes can I possibly send WhatsApps about until people just stop looking at my WhatsApp? So I got to choose wisely. And the second one of those guys gets in your face, you can't say no. You know, I just had another one. I, I couldn't help it, man. He was, he got in there. So. I'm just kind of gathering the right timing to like shoot his stuff across the world. You know, this guy, this guy is 1,200, uh, 1,200 psychologically handicapped people living in his institution. 1,200. 32 married units. Meaning they do all this genetic testing to see if they're good to have kids and then they they actually help them get married and have 32 units i mean you can imagine supplying 32 family homes of people who are not able to make a living they're they're handicapped people but enough they have enough to have a relationship and so why not why not why shouldn't they be married let's let's be behind them to marry and and then be with their kids who they're not going to be able to raise properly, but let's raise their kids with them and help them do that. I mean, there's people like this. It's like, that's the latest one that I'm like waiting to press forward on, you know, by this, this guy who's flying to Toronto today, hoping I'm going to get him a few numbers in Toronto. And he, he's, like, he's like, I almost never fly because I don't have time dealing with these 1,200 kids you know, and adults. Many of them are downs, and like, you know, not, not meaning they're they were the families that had them aren't able to handle them. You know, it's twelve hundred people. You know, so a couple hundred are down, hardcore downs people. So he he barely has time to fly. Um, yeah. So I was saying about integration is the beard is tubular because the Kabbalists say it's drawing the worlds down, but it's also drawing the mind to the heart to integrate. Strong mind to heart. But I want to make one point about what Ben Sion was saying earlier, how Western society has you run, you know. It's like Jacob's dwelling in tents, focusing desire, and Asaph's running. But I'll just, I'm going to have to finish because I realize it's 410. That, that Jake, the famous one is what Ben Sion was saying, and sorry I didn't do more on integration, is that... Um, the Western thing is you'll run and run and run and run and run and then eventually say you desired it. So there, there was once an archer walking with a... There was once a, a king walking with all his archers training in the forest and they found that every few feet they found a tree with an arrow going right through the bullseye. And so 
they, they, he sent his men all throughout the forest to find who is this great archer, who is the one who can get the bullseye every time. They finally find the archer. They bring him to the king, and the king asks, what's your secret? He says, well, I aim my arrow at a tree. I release the arrow. It hits the tree, and then I take my paintbrush, and I paint a target around the arrow. That's the way Western people date. That's the way Western people find a profession. That's the way Westerners find their contribution. Not in Judaism. In Judaism, we start with desire. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.